Now let me say that I'm not going to give you a lecture. When I lecture the students in Greenville, South Carolina, I preach to them. I detest lectures mostly. There are people who are particularly excellent at lectures and they can get away with it. But especially if you're dealing with the Bible, systematic theology, I know that there are lecturers who sit behind the desk and they sit the whole lecture and they talk as if they were talking about the weather forecast. There's so much passion in it. In fact, in this country, there's a lot more passion about the weather forecast. I uh, personally believe that if you can't get passionate about theology, there's not much you can get passionate about. And so I preach to them when I'm lecturing. So you don't have much chance of hearing a lecture today. I will, however, have to make a few quotations. Now, if my wife were here, she'd be screwing up her face and saying, Oh, I hate to hear preachers reading quotations. It's boring. And I agree with her almost all the time when preachers stand with their heads down reading paragraph after paragraph. Just tell us what the book is and we can go by it and read it ourselves. I can understand that. But in a message like this, some of the things that I say I have to prove. And I tell you up front that mostly I'll be quoting, not entirely, but mostly I'll be quoting from people who are not supporters of the Bible League. At least if they lived in this country they wouldn't be. They would be people with whom we would take great issue on many things. Though some of them on other things would be right on the mark. Now I'm doing that for a purpose. I think that it is rather unfair to deal with theological opponents only by giving the opinions of their opponents. You've got to let them speak in their own words. And so I will try to do that, but rather than going here, there and everywhere, I will be referring to some basic uh, works, some authoritative assessments of uh, what is going on in evangelicalism. One other writer that I have to put in here, you will remember that I have lived uh, until very recently for almost 30 years in the United States. Therefore, I am not really up to date with what has been going on in the United Kingdom. Uh, I didn't spend my time uh, in the ministry researching every deviant view and practice. I still don't spend my time, as many ministers seem to do, searching the internet to see what's going on here, there and everywhere so that they can tell the world their opinion of it. I had better things to do with my time. Now there are researchers and their work is very necessary. I'm simply saying God didn't call me to be a researcher. He called me to be a preacher. And so that's what I spent my time doing. But if there's an overemphasis on the American side, uh, just keep in mind that that's where I'm uh, most at home as far as knowing what's going on. And secondly... Simply because of its size and because of the number of evangelicals, fundamentalists and reformed believers in America preponderating over any other part of the Western world. Just because of that, what starts in America almost invariably comes here. In fact, uh, 
Brother Puyan and I were talking about one particular movement that I'll not be dealing with today among Reformed Baptists that started with a small group of Reformed Baptists in the United States, one of whom, as a young man, sat under my ministry. And I don't take any responsibility for where he has gone with this. But anyway, uh, I learned that it is now spread to England and is spreading further and further. So what starts over there comes here. So with those writers, caveats or explanations, we're, we're going to come to the message for today. We're going to be looking at this first chapter of Romans and especially the words at the beginning of verse 16. We'll take the whole verse, but especially these words where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. With God's word open before us, let's briefly have a word of prayer. Our God and Father, in Jesus' name we now come again to Thee, and cry that Thy gracious Spirit will come upon us, we pray, our Father, that thy word may have free course and be glorified. Anoint this preacher with power for the preaching of thy word. Give the people a hearing ear, a receptive and a responsive heart, we pray. And grant that thy word may do great things in our midst. We need to meet with thee today. Hide the preacher behind the cross, indeed even hide the Bible league behind the cross. Let Christ be seen. And O oh Lord, encourage our hearts, nerve our arms for the battle, give us grace to be as the apostle, unashamed of the gospel, with all that that means. We ask these things, giving thee our thanks and pleading the merits of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, in his name and for thy glory. Amen. Amen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I think that that is the testimony of every true evangelical. Now right away let me say that the term evangelical is very difficult. In fact, it's notoriously difficult to define. According to some writers, the word is used in at least six different major ways, each of which has a variety of shades of meaning under it, all leading to considerable ambiguity in interpreting what we mean by the term evangelical. Now, I'm not going to waste your time going down a list of possible meanings, definitions that people have suggested. I think that none of us would disagree with the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones when he said in 1971 the situation today is such that we must not take this term evangelical for granted. We must rediscover its meaning. We must define it again. And we must be ready to fight for it and defend it. Equally, I don't think any of us would disagree with what J.I. Packer said way back in 1978. He said, what makes an evangelical will be that which in the eyes of the New Testament writers 
makes a Christian. I want you to understand the full ramifications of Packer's words. He equates the term an evangelical with a Christian. And he thereby excludes any but evangelicals from properly being accepted as Christians. That was 1978. Again, I don't think we would disagree with D.A. Carson's assessment. Evangelicalism, at its best, is the locus, or the place, where the gospel is defended and proclaimed. Now, in Romans chapter 1, accepting these basic ideas about evangelicalism, in Romans chapter 1, we have the classic statement, or a classic statement, of what in the eyes of the apostle makes a Christian. Here we have the gospel. In Romans 1 there's a tremendous exposition of the gospel. And that exposition is carried out probably with the most theological precision anywhere afforded it in the New Testament in the chapters that follow in this great epistle. Here we have the gospel clearly stated, proclaimed, and defended. The evangel, which is where we get our evangelism or evangelicalism from, from this term for the gospel, the evangel. What is it? If I could sum up all that Paul is saying, and of course this is merely a summary statement, the gospel is the divine revelation of God's way of salvation from sin, from death, from the wrath of God, condemnation and hell. A salvation not only from those things, but unto a right relationship and standing with God solely on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son and our only Redeemer, those merits provided by grace alone and received by faith alone. In a nutshell, that is the gospel for which Paul is here contending and of which he says, I am not ashamed. This is New Testament Christianity. This is historic and true evangelicalism. Now as we'll see in a moment, well it may be more than a moment, knowing how I preach, but uh, as we'll see, many professed evangelicals have been advocating very radical changes to this understanding both of the New Testament term, the Gospel, and our understanding of evangelicalism and what it is to be an evangelical. These people exemplify an adage that some long forgotten king first wrote down in Latin and has come down to us as times change and we change with them. That's the attitude. The times, they are a-changing. Well, we've got to change along with them. 
I'm very tempted to get off now on a tangent and start to talk about some methods of church growth and uh, how to practice doing church as the Americans say and uh, it seems to me that the whole thing is the buzzword in America is relevance relevance the times are changing therefore we must also change now undoubtedly there's a lot of truth in what the old king said the times are changing we can't stop that and in many things we must also change I don't see many of you running around at least not the men and not even the women I don't see many of you running around in togas Paul wouldn't have known which end of a pair of trousers to get into so some things change and we change with them but let's understand this that God's truth never changes forever O Lord thy word is settled in heaven God's truth never changes it refuses entirely to trim its seals to changing winds to the whims of popular culture now that's what evangelicals always recognized and we must reflect that refusal to tamper with what Thomas Chalmers once referred to as the cardinal essentials of the gospel there is among evangelicals today something like the heaving tides of the troubled sea when it cannot rest people are looking for a new thing something that will show fresh scholarship something that will give a new angle we can never settle down it appears just to accept what has been given well on these cardinal essentials there is no possibility of changing except for the worse so while there are many temporal things in which we may disagree and even many theological things on which we may safely agree to disagree there are eternal verities upon which we can afford not to change even a hair's breadth now that was Paul's stand about the gospel there were certain things that to him were matters of indifference there were matters in which he was willing even to go in a way that his own personal predilections wouldn't have led him to the Jew to become a Jew, to the Greek to become a Greek. There were things in which there was nothing essential to the gospel at stake. And in order to present the gospel and give it a greater proclamation, Paul would go in this direction or that. There's a consistency in things that are non-essential. It's always the mark of a small mind. And Paul did not fall into that trap but when it came to the gospel Paul was absolutely determined I've been told by students and I'm not going to mention the place but in a particular missionary college that their lecturer and he wasn't trying to denigrate the apostle Paul but he made the point that Paul must have been a very hard man to work with. 
I don't really believe that. Now, I think if you were a carnal wretch, yes, he would have been a very hard man to work with. If you were half-hearted, he'd have been a very hard man to work with. But if you were fully committed to Christ, I can't think of a more magnetic character in all of church history than the great apostle to the Gentiles. As he held in his heart a great desire to go to Rome, and he expressed that desire to these people, he said, I'm ready to preach the gospel. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now keep that in mind. That was before he ever got to Rome. A little earlier he said, I'm willing to go to Rome in any way. By any means that God's willing to send me to Rome, I'm willing to go to Rome. Well, God chose to send him there as a prisoner. And so he went there. Most New Testament scholars believe that he was released and he did some more missionary work, rearrested, had a second imprisonment. And then he wrote Second Timothy. And in the final chapter, as he lay in the Mamertine prison in Rome, awaiting the executioner to come and chop his head off, he said, I am not ashamed. My old English Bible teacher was J.K. Paisley. He was a Baptist for you Baptist brethren, but I never held that against him. He and I became fast friends, though he was a very old man and I was very, very young. I received from him hundreds of his original sermon notes from the 1930s and 40s. He gave me before he died. And he used to say, it's not how you start that counts, how you finish. This is what I like about Paul. I'm not ashamed, said he before he went to Rome. Later as he's lying in a cell waiting to die a violent death, he still says with all the defiance that grace could give him in the face of all the powers of hell, I am not ashamed. What a challenge for us today. No surrender of gospel truth or gospel duty. No compromise with the world and the passing fashions of this age. No cowardly fear to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. No shameful silence in the face of the challenges that men are making to the gospel. And no indulgence of carnal ease that will keep us from reaching the lost for Jesus Christ. I am ready to preach, says Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. As I look at that, it gives me an insight into the faith and the faithfulness of true evangelicalism, standing fast in the truth of the gospel. That is the faith and the faithfulness of evangelicalism biblically understood. Standing fast in the face of the gospel. Now there are some great statements of scripture that people tend to make in a glib sort of a way. And yet 
That shouldn't be. Let me give you an example. All over the United Kingdom, there will be churches tomorrow, and they will say the Apostles' Creed, in which they will affirm Christ was born of a virgin, that he died, and that he rose again the third day from the dead. Now, someone think of that. People say that without thought. Even Christians, even preachers. They say it and uh, it has as much real effect upon their lives as if they had just recited the days of the week. If you really believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, you have now incarnate deity. If you really believe the third day God raised him from the dead, you can't simply say the words and forget it. This must have a life-changing effect. Nothing can ever be the same again. He rose from the dead. Nothing can ever be the same again. And similarly, if you say, I am not ashamed of the gospel... You can't just say that and go on as if you had said Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You can't do that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It begs a follow-up statement. I think it must always be followed by a therefore. And I would love to have the time to preach the message. I will only take a very little time on it so that I can then show you how evangelicalism is changing Faith takes it away from this. I am not ashamed of the gospel, therefore I will define it with great clarity. You see, at the heart of New Testament Christianity, there lay a very precise statement of the great essentials of the gospel. And in this, the Protestant reformers the framers of our confession, whether the Westminster or the Baptist Confession, or others of that nature, they followed the apostles. There are people who like to find fault with precision in theological statements. They even find fault with the very existence of confessions of faith. Beware of people who don't like theological precision. Beware of them. The reformers were right. Evangelicalism followed the reformers at least to a large extent. I think that some of the evangelical uh, organizations opted for very brief statements of faith. And that left the door open for various problems to arise. I think the reason they did that was that they were coming from communions, whether uh, Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, they were coming from communions that had full statements of faith, and these were merely making the highlights. I think that was the, the background. But evangelicalism always followed the apostles in a very precise understanding of the gospel. 
See, what I'm saying is this, that apart from the great doctrines of the New Testament, of the whole Bible indeed, there's no Christianity. Now keep that in mind for something that will be coming up later. Apart from the great doctrines, there's no Christianity. Apart from receiving these doctrines in saving faith, a person cannot be a Christian. That was the conviction of the reformers, that was the conviction of the early evangelicals, and that was the stand of the Apostle Paul. And that means we have got to be very clear on our definition of the gospel. Paul felt that need, and how much more do we need it in our day? We start with the authority of this gospel. Notice how I give it in the summary definition. It's a divine revelation. Paul, at the very beginning of this chapter, speaks of the gospel of God, which he promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice Paul's view of the Scriptures. They are the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Writings. This is a divine revelation. The gospel was given by God through his prophets and inscripturated in his book. There's no ambivalence whatsoever on this point. I want you to understand this, that the gospel is explicitly biblical. And what is not biblical is not Christian and it's not the gospel. Now having said that it's biblical and that's our authority, everything comes back to this. Uh, you can take some exception to the old st statement, the Bible, the Bible only, the religion of Protestants. There is a way in which that can be misunderstood. But speaking from the point of view of what is our authority for all we believe and practice. It's the book of God. Nothing else. And that again is going to come into sharp focus in just a few minutes. Now with this book open before us, we then have to be clear on what this gospel actually is and what it isn't. According to Paul, as I say, it's God's revelation. God's revelation of how he delivers sinners from an estate of wrath and condemnation because of guilt and sin, and brings them into a right relationship with himself, justifying them freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, all of which is received through faith alone in Christ alone. Now I want you to see something. There's not a hint of a social message there. The gospel is not a social message. It's not a message of social justice. Let me be clear. Evangelicals, have always been to the fore in promoting social justice. Evangelicals have always been to the fore in caring for the poor and the needy because the scripture says you do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, I know that there are brethren who go to an extreme and uh, I, I know one very, very capable theologian and writer who uh, takes great exception even to missionaries, missionary doctors, using their medical skills to pave a way for the gospel. 
I can see where he's coming from. But I think in this he's wrong. We do good to all men as much as in his lives. Evangelicals have always been to the fore in humanitarian endeavors. It was largely through the efforts of evangelicals this side of the ocean that slavery was dealt with. They were not behind hand uh, with uh, having a conscience for the needs of the people. The gospel does transform lives and it produces equity. But it's not a message of social justice. It's not a message to transform society. It will transform society as men are made right with God. But it does not make the transformation of society its message. It's not a message of communal harmony. In Northern Ireland we had many, many years of bitter, bitter struggles. Indeed, one could hardly say they're finished. And every time there was a funeral from a terrorist through the death of someone, a victim of terrorism, all the ecumenical clergy would get together and they would turn the whole thing into some great ecumenical thing and the gospel was a message of communal harmony. Now again, the gospel will produce harmony. You will be a better neighbor than you were before you were saved once you come to know Christ. You'll be a better citizen. Because God is effecting great change in your life. And you will live at peace as much as in you lies with all men. But it's not the message of the gospel to go out and be a message of social harmony. It is not a message like the charismatics are telling us of health and wealth. It's a message of salvation from sin, from death, from hell, from the wrath of a sin-hating God. It is a message to bring us out of Adam into Christ in union with him to be accepted by God because our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. His spirit now coming to dwell within us begins to transform us and make us more and more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's salvation. And this is the only way of salvation. There's no other message. And it centers on the person of Christ, I would love to have the time to deal with him as God, and man, the mediator, the last Adam, Principal Cunningham, the Free Church of Scotland, used to teach his students that really God only ever elected one man. That was the man, Christ Jesus, and the rest of his elect, their elect in him. God only ever justified one man. And certainly on the ground of his works that is true. The idea is we are justified in union with him. Never apart from him. It's through his person. Through his work. His life. May I enter a plea here. Evangelicalism sometimes degenerates into a total misunderstanding of the statement we preach Christ crucified. 
to a, an almost exclusive attention to the cross with the result that the life of Christ is almost totally neglected and it's only when you understand that without the life the cross was without value and without the cross the life would have been a failure Christ in his life lived a he lived out a perfect obedience I like to put it like this that he wove a robe of seamless righteousness pure and spotless and it was that righteous merit that he offered up to God in sacrifice his life, his death his vicarious atonement his resurrection, his current intercession these are the great centers of gospel truth and they all bring us to the key which is a gracious justification when I went to the United States I must confess that I was rather taken aback when people who were saved I have no doubt but they would come and they would say I've been in churches for 20 or 30 years I've never once heard a message on justification I've never once heard a message in fact I've never even heard the term the imputed righteousness of Christ I never once heard a message on union with Christ I wonder, and these are all out of evangelical churches, what on earth are they preaching? It was with reference to justification by faith alone that Paul said, if any man preaches any other gospel than this, let him be accursed. That's how important it was to Paul. And it's how important it ought to be to us. This justification provided by grace alone and received by faith alone. The results of which, as I say, are united, being united to Christ, declared righteous and accepted in Him, treated as righteous, treated as in union with Him, and therefore saved and secured for all eternity. I'm deliberately not going through the book of Romans to prove those statements because if I did you wouldn't be getting home until tomorrow but let's define the gospel and obviously if I'm not ashamed of the gospel I must declare it and that with great confidence I'm always struck when I read the New Testament that wherever Paul went he preached the gospel You see, he believed it. And believing it, he had to preach it. You see, evangelicalism is by its very nature evangelistic. Now, I am speaking to you as a down-the-line five-point Calvinist. Now, I don't like to use that terminology particularly. I'm simply doing it so that you don't get any misunderstanding here. But I am sick sore and tired of egghead Calvinists 
who would go from here to kingdom coming back to make a convert to their particular views of the order of the divine decree when by the way they say in their systematic theology that the divine decree is one indivisible and intuitive so how on earth you can talk about what comes before the other I don't know they go from here to there to make that sort of a convert they wouldn't cross the street to give out a gospel tract and they will mock the people who do we have reached a stage in the reformed churches where they are reformed but they are more deformed than reformed they're dead from the neck up that's totally dead You cannot honestly say I'm not ashamed of the gospel without being evangelistic. And yes, that does include the free offer of the gospel. That does present, mean presenting Christ to a world of sinners lost, undone, unclean and perishing. I agree with Mr. Spurgeon. If you can put an X in the back of God's elect, I'll preach only to the elect. But lacking that knowledge, I'll just do what the Bible tells me to do and command all men everywhere to repent. We must declare it. You see, evangelism cannot be separated from evangelicalism. Evangelism is the natural and inevitable expression of this creed that Paul is expressing here. It's the power of God unto salvation that Paul is talking about. This gospel is the power of God. So why would he preach anything else? That's why he eschewed the wisdom of the world. I thought it was interesting that when Martin Lloyd-Jones was speaking in a university setting in Europe, he was speaking to students about evangelicalism. And he started to define various of its uh, characteristics. I think he must have shocked some of them. Because he said, uh, by its very nature, it simplifies everything. And it distrusts reason. That came as a shock, I'm sure, because he appeared to be the most reasonable and logical and exegetical of preachers. And yet, he said, distrust reason. Of course, he didn't mean that we have got to be obscurantists. No. But I, I certainly take the meaning. Let's get away with all this academic gobbledygook. Let's get away from all this pride of man. Let's get away from the wisdom of the world. If you know your early church history, you'll know that when philosophy came in to be the governing force in the interpretation of Scripture, it brought in an awful lot of junk and heresy. Paul says, I preach the gospel. Oh, that we would get back to this. I'll tell you what's wrong with many preachers today. And I have to confess that I have not escaped this. I don't know many preachers who have, if any. 
And we, we tend to think so much depends on me. I, I haven't preached very well, so my head's between my knees. Well, maybe there's a lot for me to be ashamed about. But whoever said that for God to save souls, I have got to be brilliant. I have got to be such a scholar. I have got to be such an orator. One thing I learned in years of close fellowship and watching up close and personal, Dr. Paisley was this. I've seen him in the pulpit when he was so tired he could hardly get out of the chair to get up to preach. And then he would get going and he would preach. But you could tell the man was tired. By his standard, by my standard, he would have been preaching brilliantly, but by his standard, he was not anywhere near his best. But he expected people to be saved. He always expected that God was going to save sinners. Why? Because it's the gospel that's the power of God. It's the gospel that's the power of God. Oh, that we would never forget that. Wherever we go, one method of evangelism, preach the gospel in season and out of season. No reliance on philosophy, psychology, or whatever, but total reliance on the word of God. And of course, there's a third therefore. If I am not ashamed of this gospel, then I must defend it. And that with great courage. I've got to be willing to stand for the gospel. If this is the gospel of God, how can I be ashamed of it? Paul told the Philippians, I am set for the defense of the gospel. I used to hear when I was a young preacher some of these very specious arguments that compromisers would make. Oh, I don't think the Bible needs me to defend it. I don't think the gospel needs to be defended. Just, just preach it. Don't defend it. Whoever gave those characters the right to rewrite the New Testament? Paul said, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Therefore, there's going to have to be a standing up for it. Now, as I said, these are the classic elements of evangelicalism. Evangelicals differed in many things. But in these things they were united. But not any longer. Here's where we come to the changing face of evangelicalism. Where once we had evangelicals, and everybody knew who they were. In fact, one historian, not an evangelical, said that evangelicals really knew who they were and what they stood for. They had no crisis of identity. They knew who they were. That was once the case, but now we have a bewildering array of people who claim the title. Now these are actual groups. We have people who are called New Evangelicals. We have people who are called Conservative Evangelicals. Some are called Post-Conservative Evangelicals. Some are called young evangelicals. Some are called radical evangelicals. Feminist evangelicals. Worldly evangelicals. Yes, that's an actual group. Worldly evangelicals. Liberal evangelicals. Roman Catholic evangelicals. 
and Greek Orthodox Evangelicals. Next thing we'll be having is Evangelical Atheists. Now you just listen to such a list of groupings and it gives you a broad hint about the trends that have surfaced in modern evangelicals. I'm going to suggest five areas where we see disturbing trends where evangelicalism has radically altered or is in the process of radical alteration. And I will not I promise you, preach an hour in every one of them. I may be tempted, but I'll not do it. The first trend, very obvious, is that's confusing the identity of evangelicals. Al Mohler, Southern Baptist, said, A good many who claim to be evangelicals now want to affirm something other than evangelical theology. He was right. Just a few years ago, a group called the Angus Reid Group in Canada conducted a survey in 33 countries to discover the varying identities of evangelicals. And to do this, they formulated their questions adopting the fourfold uh, definition of an evangelical given by the British historian David Bevington. He had suggested the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the Bible, the centrality of conversion, and the centrality of evangelism. Those were the four central things that he said made up an evangelical. And so in order to qualify as an evangelical, people had to strongly agree with the following statements. First, on the cross, they strongly agreed, through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, God provided a way for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the doctrine of the cross. Now to the Bible. They had to strongly agree that the Bible is the inspired word of God or, to whatever degree, the Bible is God's word and is to be taken literally word for word. On conversion, they strongly had to strongly agree, I have committed my life to Christ and consider myself to be a converted Christian. And then in evangelism, they strongly agreed it is important to encourage non-Christians to become Christians. Now, if you could strongly agree with those four statements, you're an evangelical. There's a big problem with that. And the problem is that these questions do not probe the identity of a true evangelical at all. You see, it's not so much what they say, although I could take exception to some of the wording here, it's not so much what they say, it's what they don't say. And when you're dealing with modern evangelicals, always remember to look out very carefully for what they do not say. And that will often tell you a whole lot more than you can learn from what they do say. Given that those were the questions that identified evangelicals, it's not much wonder that Mark Knoll, a new evangelical historian, said... He wondered at the distribution of beliefs and practices traditionally known as evangelical. He said it's surprisingly wide. You see, this is the kind of grab bag definition of evangelicalism that's being used to, to just bring vast millions into the camp of evangelicals. 
On this basis, we learn that an Orthodox Roman Catholic is really an evangelical. We learn that, uh, according to Billy Graham, the late Pope John Paul II was the greatest evangelist in the world in the 20th century. Now, this dumbing down of the definition of an evangelical going on all around us. Chuck Colson. I don't know if many of you know much about Chuck Colson. He uh, was the man caught up in the Watergate scandal, went to prison, uh, got converted, and he uh, wrote his book, Born Again. He got the title of it as he sat with his wife in a Roman Catholic Mass. He uh, became an evangelical writer, a brilliant writer, I must say far as skill went and uh, he formed Prison Fellowship International Chuck Colson used this grab bag way of describing and defining an evangelical as the basis for his argument for evangelical and Roman Catholic togetherness in other words he's saying this look we have a common enemy that enemy is secular humanism and there are just too many Roman Catholics in the world for us to leave them out. We need their numbers. So we define evangelicalism in a way that allows them in. On the same basis, one that's Pentecostalist like T.D. Jakes, he's an evangelical. Word of faith, prosperity preachers. They're evangelicals. Benny Hinn, who once famously said of the Trinity, there are nine of them. He's an evangelical. Now this confusing the identity of evangelicals is a deliberate trend. And the more it's accepted, the more watered down the gospel becomes, the more diluted our testimony becomes, the more confused our message becomes and the more utterly impotent our influence becomes. And that's the real reason for the confusion. The second great trend is revising theology. The theology of evangelicalism under revision. For some years now, there has been a movement of post-conservative evangelicals who have plotted a very radically different course theologically from what I have outlined. A new evangelical historian, Roger Olson, listed the following trends among those evangelicals, no, evangelicals, who are, quotes, shedding theological conservatism. Now here are the trends that he identifies in evangelicalism today. One, eagerness to hold ecumenical dialogue with non-evangelicals. Drawing their theology, not only from the Bible, but from Christian tradition, culture, and contemporary Christian experience. 
Man, that leaves the door wide open. You can have anybody as a Christian once you get rid of the Bible and you go by contemporary experience. Turning away from a, quote, wooden interpretation of the Bible. By the way, that simply means letting the Bible mean what the Bible says it means. I believe in that kind of interpretation of the Bible. I don't think there's any other kind of interpretation of the Bible. I think everything else is a satanic delusion and lie. Once you impose on the Bible that which the Bible does not teach, it's a lie. But these evangelicals, says Olsen, are turning away from the wooden interpretation of the Bible to one that sees it as spirit-inspired, realistic narrative. You may ask, what on earth does that mean? They're still asking it. And here's another one. An open view of God. An open view. This is called open theism. And in open theism, God is no longer the sovereign Lord of all circumstances, who is working all things after the counsel of His will. But in their words, He is rather a risk taker for whom the future lies hidden because it depends on the free choices of his creatures. God is not what the old reformers and evangelical leaders thought he was. God is not all-knowing. God is not the one who made the plan. God is not the one who's working all things according to his will. God is locked into a state of flux where he is forever reacting to the free decisions of his creatures. And of course, like us, he's reduced to taking risks. I don't recognize such a God such a God, even by people, adopted by people who say they are evangelical, is an idol. And as Paul taught, behind every idol lives a devil. I do not recognize that God. Another friend, said Olson, was some form of universalism or near universalism. That is the idea that some people may be saved without any knowledge of Christ or any faith in Christ. And then something that's been going on for a long time, in fact it goes way, way, way back in church history, and that is a more synergistic view of salvation. Don't get worried about the big word. The reformed faith has always believed that in monergism, in other words, Mono, you know the word mono, meaning only. The only energy, the only power that can bring life to a dead soul is the power of God. We do not cooperate with God in our regeneration. It is God who does that work. But 
in synergism, the sinner works along with God. He makes his contribution to the whole process. This is what's going on, according to Olson and Evangelicals. So, uh, the most vital points in our doctrinal system, the beliefs of modern evan- or of ancient evangelicalism are being overthrown, and many modern evangelicals have simply sunk into heresy. Now I'm going to mention two areas. One that's very important to the Bible League, and that's Scripture. And the other is equally important to it, and that's salvation. On Scripture, modern evangelicals are coming more and more to believe what evangelicals historically never believed. We have always believed that the gospel is the divine revelation, that it's conveyed to us by and written down in the inspired and infallible Word of God. Now, you could never deny that and be counted an evangelical until the present age. A long time ago, the downgrade started. But I was just entering into the ministry. A very great Christian leader gave me a book called The Problem of the Old Testament by James Orr. There's many admirable qualities. James Orr was one of the writers in that uh, series of books called The Fundamentals. He was there as a defender of the faith. And yet it is James Orr who formed the modern root from which much of this deviation from Scripture has come. I don't want to go into a lot of detail in Orr's beliefs, uh, but he did come to the position where uh, there were errors in the Bible. Certain kind of error. There was inexactitude in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 24, we have Eliezer's conversation with Rebecca and her family, and he said there was no stenographer present, so Moses couldn't have known word for word what was said. When did the Holy Ghost ever need to have a stenographer present? He held that some of the books of the old of the Bible were written by people who were not the claimed authors. They were done by people using a well-known name as a pseudonym. Now, let me tell you, everybody who writes under a pseudonym is not a liar. You may decide to write a book under a pseudonym. There's nothing morally wrong in that. Unless you're adopting the name of, say, John Keats or John Milton or Shakespeare, and you're presenting your work as if it had come from their pen. That makes you a liar. And I think it is absolutely shameful for any professed evangelical to foist that upon the Bible. Or believed in varying degrees of inspiration. 
errors in the Bible, he said, it hardly seems worthwhile to deny the compatibility of inspiration with the possibility of minor errors also in the matter of the record. Modern evangelicals have just latched on to that and they have developed what they call modified inerrancy. I think that Packer falls into that group way back in 1960 when he was accepted as a genuine evangelical. He drew the distinction between the subjects the Bible dealt with and the terms in which it spoke of them. He said that the, the writers used the language and the ideas of the days in which they lived. I said, so what you've always got to be asking, and this is quite true, you must always ask what is being asserted in this passage. Not just what does the language say, but what is being asserted. That, that sounds okay. If he meant only that the Bible used popular language, not scientific language. We do it every day. Well, let me say, we can't really do it here in Britain every day. We talk about the sun rising, the sun going down. Of course, the sun doesn't either rise or go down at all. But we talk about that. We would still talk about the pillars of the earth. We don't believe that there's Hercules or somebody standing holding up the earth in four pillars. We don't believe that because we use that kind of language. And if that's all that Packer meant, I would have no problem. But that's not all that it means. He comes to Genesis 3. Can't take that literally. Oh, no, no. The, the conversations of Genesis 3, really, you could never be sure they took place. Another man on this campus, Clark Pinnock, according to Pinnock, he goes even further. And he says Stephen made mistakes when he was preaching there, as recorded in Acts chapter 7. His history of Old Testament's wrong in places. Of course, he said, you can't charge error in the Bible because Stephen didn't intend to teach Old Testament history. Well, if he didn't intend it at that time, I don't know why on earth he said it. Going even further, Daniel Fuller, a Fuller Seminary. He says the Bible is infallible only in matters of faith and practice. So when you get to matters of history and all the rest of it, you can throw all that out. It's just peripheral to the real message. And the Bible can be wrong. Now just think of this. The Bible can be wrong in every place where you can test it. And yet in the places where you can't test it, We've got to accept that it's true. Is it any wonder we're living in a day when people dismiss evangelicalism, laugh at it, and dismiss its message? I'm sad to say that even F.F. Bruce goes along with Fuller. I started off with Packer and Pinnock. They were modified infallibility, modified inerrancy. Fuller and Bruce go even further. To limited infallibility. It's only here and there. F.F. Bruce wrote the foreword to one of the most devastatingly unbelieving attacks on Scripture, written by a man called Dewey M. Beagle. F.F. Bruce wrote the foreword. And to get down to brass tacks, Beagle said that even the doctrines of the Bible may be wrong 
Many years ago, Clarence Bass and other evangelicals said, many of us admit that the Bible unquestionably contains factual errors. But we still maintain it is inerrant in divine purpose. That's what's called double speak. This downgrade continues. Evangelicals use a form of criticism that's known as redaction criticism. What does that mean? It means that the New Testament writers modified the written sources they employed. Those written sources came out of an oral tradition. So I want you to see what's happening. We have years of oral tradition. Then we have the written sources. Then we have the New Testament writers sitting down to modify them, which is a nice way of saying they changed them for their own purposes so that they put words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ that he never spoke and they created events that never took place. These are evangelicals now, supposedly. Thankfully, we've got to say that some have gone too far when Robert Gundry, way back in 1983, uh, wrote in Matthew's Gospel and he took this line, the evangelical theological society uh, had such a division of opinion and he was forced to leave but that's 30 years ago and there's been precious little standing up to these guys ever since all this is called evangelical scholarship a very bleak picture the attack on the Bible the attack on the Bible now I want you to see this and uh, don't get me wrong I'm not downplaying this we have, we have tended to have a focus only on the translation of the Bible. Now, I'm an A.V. man. But let me say this. While we must maintain our stand there, we must broaden our vision and recognize that it is not just on the translation it is on the very character of scripture as originally given that's where the attack is now concentrated now there's a good side to all this because I have to be honest and say that there are men in the evangelical movement with whom I have points of great variance I could name names, I'm not going to do that at this point in time. People with whom I would have great points of controversy. And yet I have to say that in these areas, they have stood up and they've got in the battle line and there are many solid works of evangelical scholarship that are answering these people and their errors. We've got to be thankful for that. But I would say it's time for the most, can I use the word conservative, the most separated of the evangelicals, the most, the best of the reformed, the best of the people who are outside the camp, for them to add their contribution. I think one thing that has been wrong, and I say this regarding my own denomination, what has been wrong in many parts of the church that's outside the camp of the great apostasy 
is that we have given up writing much that's meaningful. Oh, that we would take our stand on these things for the Holy Scriptures. We move on to the doctrine of salvation. What's the heart of the gospel? It's the, the person and work of Christ. The penal, substitutionary, satisfactory atonement of Jesus Christ. Satisfactory means that he made satisfaction to God, his law, his righteousness. It's the heart of the gospel. You take away the substitutionary atonement, penal satisfaction, and you take away the gospel. There is no gospel. That's what Paul meant when he said, we preach Christ crucified. He said, God made him to be sin for us. He told the Galatians that he was made a curse for us. That's how he redeemed us from the curse of the law, by being made a curse for us. But some modern evangelicals, used to be just liberals, but now evangelicals, are joining a growing number of people who are saying, Anselm, who first came up with the satisfaction theory, and later John Calvin, they led us all astray. What they want to teach is a less violent, and those are their words, a less violent, a non-punitive view of atonement. That's the notion. Now follow me carefully. I'll take this the easiest way I can. We have some great evangelical publishing houses. In 2001, Erdmann's, that's an evangelical publishing house, historically. It published a volume, The Non-Violent Atonement, denying the penal satisfaction rendered by Christ. Here in the United Kingdom, Bishop N.T. Wright called the traditional interpretation of Galatians 3, 10 through 13. Christ delivered us and redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. He took the evangelical view of that and said it was nonsense. In America there's what's called an emergent church movement. One of its leaders called penal satisfaction and penal substitution cosmic child abuse. That's blasphemous. Coming from a professed evangelical. Another one of those emergent leaders, Brian McLaren, said bona fide evangelicals such as Mark Baker, Joel Green and N.T. Wright are suggesting that the gospel is not atonement-centered or at least not penal substitutionary atonement-centered. And he gives his own view of that penal substitution. He says it presents a God who's incapable of forgiving unless he kicks somebody else. Coming from a liberal one could possibly understand but from a professed evangelical. In the year 2000, IVF, historically again, Evangelical Publishing House, it published a blistering rejection of the old evangelical by Joel Green and Mark Baker that charges us with preaching, and I quote, the perceived necessity of placating an emotion-laden God on the verge of striking out against any who disobey his every will. The doctrine of salvation, the blood of Christ, Christ made sin for us. It's evangelicalism now that's repudiating that. 
come to the doctrine of justification I, can, I will only mention this because it is so huge we now have what's called the new perspective or the new perspectives on Paul this originated with liberals was adopted by N.T. Wright and by other professed evangelicals including a very well known professor at Westminster Theological Seminary who was forced to resign ultimately though the seminary in my opinion was culpably slow in getting rid of him and according to this the reformers were wrong they were wrong about Paul they were wrong about Paul's meaning when they talked about a forensic justification that is justification is a legal term and uh, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ he said Paul never taught those things so they, they were wrong and they were wrong about Judaism in seeing Judaism as a religion that promoted self-righteousness and salvation by works they said Second Temple Judaism did not believe that. So they were wrong. And evangelicalism has been wrong ever since. In fact, N.T. Wright and the others went so far as to say that justification doesn't even deal with how a person gets saved. It's not dealing with how a man gets right with God at all. It's not even a doctrine of salvation. It's all about ecclesiology. It's not God declaring us righteous by imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It's rather his declaration that a believer is already a member of the covenant people of God. A relationship that he enters through baptism. Usually as an infant. Now, that's a pretty far cry from the old doctrine of justification. It goes further. The reformers were not only wrong in dealing with Paul, they're wrong in emphasizing the salvation of individual sinners instead of what they call the world-transforming power proclaimed in the gospel about Christ the Lord. So the gospel comes down to going out to the world and saying, Christ is Lord. The whole world. Somehow, therefore, transformed. Paul didn't preach a new religious experience, they tell us. He simply announced the, the fact that he saw Public fact, Christ has been crucified, Christ has risen, Christ is therefore validated as Israel's Messiah. And then it comes to the crucial part of the doctrine of justification. What's that? Faith alone. Some people think, for example, that the Church of Rome does not believe in justification by faith. That's not true. Just the Church of Rome believes in justification by grace and justification by faith. It does not believe in justification by grace alone and by faith alone. And it's the alone that makes the difference and draws the line between truth and heresy. And they jettison, these new perspective people jettison 
sola fide, by faith alone. N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham, I think he was, but he was, uh, he is the evangelical who spearheaded this new perspective. He distinguishes between a present justification and a future justification. Now see how far evangelicalism has come. Watch this carefully. Future justification is by faith. So now you exercise faith that you will be justified. But when you get there, but you follow this carefully. That faith includes your faithfulness. In other words, it's going ultimately to be on the basis of your works. Your future justification. Now, by faith, you enter in as a believer. You're recognized as a member of the church. That's present justification according to right. Future justification depends on your faithfulness. How well you worked. How much you did. What you did or what you didn't do. In other words, at this point, the new perspective goes right back to the theology of the Council of Trent. This is all evangelical. And then there's a third area in salvation that they they go astray on. And that's pluralism, jettisoning the exclusiveness of Christ. This is the belief that people can be saved on the merits of Christ without ever placing their faith in Christ. That's not a new idea. A.H. Strong, well known in Baptist circles as a theologian, he held to that view. This is the idea behind Billy Graham's famous quote to Robert Schuller. I'm sure you've read this. If you haven't, listen carefully. This was Billy Graham on Robert Schuller's program. And he says, I think everybody who knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, now let me stop there. How could you know Christ and not be conscious of it? I think that everybody who knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. God's purpose, he says, is to call out a people for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, the Christian world, the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus. I think they are saved and are going to be in heaven with us. Billy Graham. And again he said, I've met people in various parts of the world. They have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible and never heard of Jesus. But they believed in their hearts that there was a God. They're going to heaven. Now that's evangelicalism today in many quarters. And that's a growing conviction that people can be saved through Christ without ever coming to know Christ. But just in case some people will still be not saved out there in the heathen world, 
Some evangelicals have resurrected a couple of old heresies to help them along. What they call a post-mortem encounter with God. Some of them put a big term on it, eschatological evangelism. That sounds good, doesn't it? Eschatological evangelism. That means after the heathen die, the gospel will be preached to them and they'll have another chance to repent and respond believingly. And just in case that doesn't bring them all in, just in case there's any still so foolish as even after he's died to reject the offer of escaping hell, then they'll be annihilated, as John Stott believes. Evangelicalism. How they've twisted theology. Time does not allow me to deal in detail with the fact that there's a, an increasing return to traditionalism and sacramentalism. Many evangelicals are trying to get a way back. They're, they're fed up with the, uh, well, uh, quite rightly so, with what has been called the mega church, seeker sensitive, market driven generation. People who set up to build big churches as if they were building a business, they're giving that up. And they're wanting to get back to an ancient form of church ministry. Have they gone back to the reformers? No. Have they gone back to the apostles? No. They've gone back to the church fathers and their liturgies, their icons, their candles, their crosses, their pictures, their art. And sometimes the worship leader even pronouncing absolution of sin. Evangelicals. Now this isn't something new. If you know your English evangelical history, you'll know that way back in 1967, the uh, in Kiel, the National Evangelical Anglican Congress started along that same line. Baptism's the sign that you're in the church. Baptism's what marks you as a Christian, and baptism gives you the right to be treated as a Christian even though you're not an evangelical that's not limited to the Anglicans in America there's a Presbyterian theologian and he has gone a long way down this sacramental line he's one of what's called the federal vision or Auburn theologians these federal visionists I think they're what we would call hyper-covenantalists And they said the reformers knew that the preaching preaching was limited. They knew it couldn't reach the very young and it couldn't reach the very old. Notice that, the very old. But the sacraments could be given to both. He quotes someone else who's saying, in effect, that the word communicates truth. The sacraments communicate life. Now that's baptismal regeneration. That's the Roman Catholic view of the sacraments of opus operatum. They work just by virtue of their being employed. Baptism, he tells us, this is a Presbyterian, is the means through which the Spirit unites us to Christ. 
Baptism is the instrumental means of union with Christ. Men and women, this is sheer heresy. Under the term evangelical. There's a realigning of relationships with the world and with the church. Evangelicalism is now thoroughly ecumenical. And I want to tell you, if you think it has been difficult to be a separatist, get ready for the big battle. I think of Jeremiah 12. If you've run with the footmen and they have worried, wearied me, then how will you do in the swelling Jordan? Let me tell you, it's going to be more and more difficult to stand outside the camp. I find that there is a, a mood sweeping evangelicals, the reformed, the fundamentalists, all alike. There is a mood that's sweeping them that says, we don't want to be forever fighting. We don't want to be forever the minority on the outside criticizing. We want acceptance. Years ago, the new evangelicals went to the liberals and in effect said, if you accept us as scholars, we'll accept you as Christians. And that's what happened. Now that mood has spread. But men and women, let me tell you, in this ecumenical age, we are going to be called upon to stand. Lloyd-Jones said one of the first signs that a man is ceasing to be truly evangelicalism, that he is, he ceased to be concerned with negatives. There are negatives that we have got to stand against. It is wrong to go down the line of evangelicals and Catholics together to blur the distinctions for union with Rome. It is wrong to unite in churches with unbelievers. For men who are saved to lay their hands on the head of an unbeliever and ordain him as a minister over a flock of God, that is wrong. It is wrong for the sake of peace and unity to throw out the great doctrines of the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is wrong. It is wrong to take the stance that Billy Graham took when he spoke to Archbishop Ramsey. Do we have to, and I'm paraphrasing, do we have to be enemies because we disagree on theology? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But no, we don't. Let me tell you, ecumenism has not gone away. It's changed its tactics. It's more violently powerful today than ever before. Then there are relations with the world. What marked evangelicals was that they were a people who stood apart. Now this might sound old-fashioned. They didn't smoke. They didn't drink. They didn't run to the cinema. They didn't run to the dance. They didn't dress immodestly. They didn't curse. They didn't swear. Now that's not what made them Christians. Nowadays, I should say they're Christians, and they do those things out of the respect for Christ. Nowadays, however, things are changing. Evangelicals say, if that's the way you live, you are a pietist. That's one of the filthiest words in the mouth of some of the Reformed. To call a man a pietist. You know, in European church history, 
especially in Lutheranism, when Lutheranism had become so dead, that was damnable. That was damning souls. With the pietists, who sought to bring spiritual life, living for God. The Methodists, I don't agree with John Wesley's theology. And I don't agree with a lot of the things he said and did, but I want to tell you this. They were not called Methodists for nothing. They lived by a method. And I tell you, we could be doing with a wee bit of that method today. We had a Presbyterian in America. And he would dismiss people like me. I, I'm not only a pious, I'm a legalist. Pardon me, people like him. If you have any standard of Christian living, if you seek to obey the law of God, you're a legalist. Uh, of course he ought to know better. He does know better. That's a lie. I'm not establishing merit with God by my obedience. I'm obeying God's law because he's placed that law in my heart. I'm not a legalist. But this guy said he was mocking the whole idea of revival. Mocking it. And they just dismissed all these people who don't drink, don't smoke. They have prayer meetings. Oh, well, you know, they're looking for revival. And he said, America has yet to see the real power of God. And what he was, do you know what he was suggesting? And no doubt this is where YouTube will come into its own. To see a group of people sitting around in a circle with a Bible open on their knee and a tanker of beer in one hand and a cohiba. Now I have to confess, I have to go and look up what a cohiba was. It's a, a particular brand of cigar. So a tanker of beer in that hand, puffing a cigar here. My only wish is they would try to do both at the one time and do us all a good turn. But we'll not go down that road. And with the Bible cracked open on their knee, that's going to speak to America. These fellows are living in Clyde Cuckoo Land. You know, that man, other than write a load of nonsense, that man has never done anything. These are people who have never seen a move of God. They're coming from churches that never have a prayer meeting. Never. Men and women, let me tell you, not only is it going to be harder and harder to stand against ecumenism outside the camp, and I call upon you to be separatists. I'm not calling upon you to be a Presbyterian or a free Presbyterian. If God doesn't make you that, then I don't want you to be that. But I do want you to be outside the camp of the great ecumenical apostasy and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And if the World Council of Churches and the Church of Rome are not works of darkness, then I will get rid of my Bible for it means nothing. I do call you to be separatists. Now, if it's going to be difficult to be separated from the great apostasy, it's going to be just as difficult and more so to live a separated life you're going to be held up to ridicule to stand in holiness unto God. It's out of fashion now, even with evangelicals. I will not deal with the final friend for replacing evangelism with social action. That's the big one today. 
Even Billy Graham wrote and distributed a paper to the members of the World Council of Churches Central Committee. And he said, there's no doubt that the social gospel has directed its energies toward the release of many of the problems of suffering humanity. I am for it. I believe it is biblical. That is tragic. And what must we do? Brethren, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I trust that's your testimony. No matter what it costs, no matter who's for it, no matter who's against it, no matter what the opposition, no matter what the trends in evangelicalism or any otherism, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So what am I going to do? What must we do? What must the Bible League do? Well, we must grasp this gospel with fresh clarity as the true evangelical faith. We must act upon what we believe in separated holy living in the power of the Holy Ghost. And there is a big subject. Don't give up the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the charismatics. They do not have the genuine article. Let us not give up the reality because a bunch of people have claimed something that is merely a counterfeit. Let us indeed act in what we believe. Let's stand. Stand. Oh, for grace to be found among those who stand without compromise on the great essentials of the gospel. Let us separate from the great apostasy and the worldliness of our day. Let us stand together with those of like precious faith. I am calling you to separate but I am also calling you to have wit and wisdom. The, the, the tendency is to go from separation into schism. I said evangelicals may disagree in many things. I am a Presbyterian, though not a pedo-baptist. But I am a Presbyterian by conviction. Now that means all you Baptist brethren are wrong. And you're going to be free Presbyterians when you get to heaven. For you're going to sing unto him who hath loved us and loosed us from our sins. Along with the elders. So we've got three Presbyterian elders up there. No, seriously. Should we separate? Presbyterians can't have anything to do with Baptists. And Baptists can't have anything to do with Methodists. But that man's not five-point Calvinist. In fact, he may even be Arminian. So if John Wesley was around today, I wouldn't have him near me. And I would look very, very much askance at D.L. Moody, even though God was using him to win half the country. Spurgeon was wrong. He shouldn't have let Moody into his pulpit. No, no, my friend, let me tell you, we're not called to be schismatic, we're called to be separatists. There are things on which we may disagree. You may not like my eschatology, you may not like my view of baptism but I want to tell you when we are at one on the great cardinal essentials of the gospel on this book on the Christ of this book 
on the finished work of Christ on the way of salvation on justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone when we are one in those things then let us stand together let us stand together shoulder to shoulder let us give ourselves to prayer now we come to where evangelicalism has really failed and we're not talking about the trends out there we're talking about ourselves the days of great promise are almost gone back in Spurgeon's day somebody wrote a tract called The Death of Mrs. Premier if they wrote it then what on earth would they say today I had an Orthodox Presbyterian minister come visit us in Greenville on Wednesday night at prayer meeting I wish I could say it was a revival prayer meeting where the heavens opened and the power and glory of God came down it wasn't but there was a spirit of prayer it wasn't a hard prayer meeting but there was a spirit of prayer that man came out to shake hands with me at the door. He'd come from a state far away. His eyes were like saucers. He said, I've never been in a prayer meeting like that. I've never heard people pray with such intelligence, such spiritual insight, such intensity. I am going back to my church. We do not have a prayer meeting. I'm going back to my church to start a prayer meeting. And he did. They had to stop it. For the only people at the prayer meeting, the minister and his wife. No elders would come. No deacons would come. No members would come. I had a great friend, an Indian preacher. You would not agree with all his theology, but he was the mightiest man of prayer I've ever known. He spent eight hours out of every 24 on his knees with an open Bible. When you prayed with him, you entered realms in prayer you never knew existed. I remember him saying, someone said to him, Pentecost isn't for today. He's talking about the power of the Holy Ghost. It's not a tongues. A tongues or charismatic style character. He said, this was his answer. He didn't give him a theological answer. This is what he said. He said, you do what the early church did. You spend ten days on your knees. You spend ten days waiting upon God. And then come tell me the power of the Holy Ghost is not for us today men and women let us give ourselves to prayer and let us preach the gospel far and wide let us get it to the masses how shall they hear without a preacher dumb dogs who cannot bark are not I fear limited to the liberals we have many a dumb dog in a supposedly evangelical pulpit. Men and women, give ourselves to prayer and give ourselves to preaching. Disseminate the word and you'll find the gospel is still the power of God.
May God give us the grace not to be ashamed. Whatever the changing face of evangelicalism may show. May our face show like Christ, one that sets a flint to finish the will of God and serve him faithfully to the end. May the Lord bless his word for his name's sake.